Welcome to Become an Idol. This is Episode 12, Learning Experience Design Process and Principles with Matthew Daniel. I'm Dr. Robin Sargent, owner of Idol Courses. This is a place where newbies come to learn and veterans share their knowledge. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Matthew Daniel about learning experience design. If you've heard this term before, but you aren't sure how it's different from instructional design, you'll definitely want to learn from Matthew. We'll talk about the differences between LXD and ID, the process of LXD, and practical actions you can take to implement these very important principles in your next or even very first project. If you want to become an idol and you'd like to join the only implementation program of its kind that not only shows you exactly how to create your job application assets and build a portfolio from scratch, but also includes mentorship and experience opportunities in instructional design and online learning, then go to idlecourses.com and join the waitlist. Enrollment for the Academy opens September 12th and closes on September 20th. The class will start on September 30th. I have here with me today, Matthew Daniel. And I actually met Matthew through LinkedIn because he put a post on there about wanting to connect with learning experienced designers. And I asked him a question. I said, well, what? I'm really curious why you say not instructional designers, but learning experience designers. Like really, what is the key differences? And his answer was so thoughtful and kind that I then direct messaged him and said, hey, can I talk to you? And we met and he gave me this wonderful um, download about exactly what learning experience designers do. And so I invited him to join us today to um, explain basically what he shared with me about learning experience design. And so Matthew, will you please introduce yourself to the Become an Idol audience? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just start by saying thanks for having me on and for the kind words to kick this off. So um, what I do is consult really simply, and that is I help companies improve their learning experience or learner experience. Um, and it comes in a couple of different fashions. Sometimes it's about helping L&D folks learn new skills around experience design that they don't already have. Sometimes that comes in, in the shape of helping them with systems, integrating those systems, giving a, a coherent experience to the, to the learners. Sometimes it's working directly with software providers, uh, with learning experience platform vendors, and helping them think through what it should look like when it gets inside the company. And, and then sometimes it's really large transformation efforts over years to change the effort uh, in the organization, not just so it's really good business-focused design or really good learning instruction design, but so that it's learner-focused in its approach. But, but that's, that's what it looks like day-to-day -day is helping in all of those different shapes, but always with a lens towards what is the experience we're creating for our learners. And so um, I know when we first talked, you mentioned that you started out in instructional design. Is that right? And how did you become an idol and then move to 
learning experience design or LXD? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, it, the journey starts really long ago. It starts two plus decades ago of doing training. And I, I was in a nonprofit. It was very leadership focused. So when I was a teenager, I started going through leadership development courses, uh, doing leadership, and then also teaching others. Uh, this is probably, I was 14 years old and I started teaching my first uh, leadership development course. And so I, I did that for a number of years, uh, went off and got a degree in history, which was completely irrelevant to everything. Um, and then I grew up in rural Arkansas and there was this company who was uh, doing work for Homeland Security. And, and I wanted to stay local to the area where I grew up at that point in time. And it, there was an opportunity to work in learning operations, essentially, uh, Learning operations is a really fancy way to say I made copies of training books uh, that went out to the field <laughs> for people to train on. And, and I had a lot of free time when I was there. Um, we did a lot of efficiencies in that operation space. And there was this train the trainer, a 40-hour, one-week train the trainer that they hired all these instructors to come participate in. And my boss said, hey, why don't you just, you've got some free time. Why don't you take a week and go through this training? And it absolutely completely and utterly changed the direction of my life because I had no idea that uh, adult learning theory exists. I had no idea. Uh, I, I tried some pedagogy stuff when I was in college. I was thinking maybe I'd be a social science education and, and I hated it. I hated pedagogy. I hated all the theories. I hated the approach. But when it came to adult learning, it immediately clicked. So it's all those things I'd been doing since I was 14 in a classroom and had been trial and error, figured out what was more effective and less effective. And then I learned there was a whole science behind it. And I became obsessed with all things Gagne and Kirkpatrick and Blooms and uh, started, uh, got involved with um, what was then ASTD and really started to develop those skills. Started with my first instructor-led training that I was responsible for designing and then moved into uh, online learning and started writing storyboards uh, for different customers because the, the company I worked for, it was a consulting company. So I was in and out of a lot of different organizations at that point in time. And the more I got into it, the more and more and more I enjoyed it. Uh, over the years, here, here is the big transformation that took place is uh, I spent a number of years at Capital One in a learning technology role. Eventually that instructional design led into learning technology and bridging between, you know, all these IT folks and the learning design people. And in those days, everybody was running away from that conversation. It was really hard and complex. And, uh, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to make a career of living somewhere in the middle of being an interpreter for those people. And so started that work. Well, here's the fast forward story. I ended up leaving uh, at Capital One enterprise design and the learning technology. And I was assigned this project, um, which was, well, assigned is a little too generous. I was, um, people were talking about the digital transformation and I thought that L&D should have a place in helping define what that was. And so I got out there, it was a really ambitious goal. And I got out there and started putting together what I thought a curriculum or a plan should look like. I started working with some other partners around and put together what I felt like was this really good, solid, instructionally sound, uh, well thought out uh, course, you know, the best of idol. Um, and and it ultimately what happened is uh, it turned out that none of the learners could find the content. 
Oh. And it was devastating, right? So, so my boss asked me to go sit in a user lab. And if you don't know what a user lab is, that's essentially where they put people behind a one-way mirror. You watch users interact with your software, with your, in, in my case, with your content, with your portal, your website, whatever those things are. It could be a physical product. How do they interact with a chair or a table or any of those things? And so um, my boss, the CLO at Capital One at that time, said, hey, before we roll this out, and if we want all these people in the digital organization, these product designers and um, visual designers and product managers, if we want them to sponsor this solution that you're working on with the enterprise learning team, you need to go put this through your user lab. And I thought, well, what the do I need the user lab for? Um, I, I don't need a user lab. I'm a good instructional designer. I don't need the users to tell me what I did or if I did well or if it was good enough. I know I was instructionally sound. And I watched from behind this one-way mirror as these learners tore apart my hard-earned work. <laughs> and, and honestly, that first user lab, I think I ignored most of the feedback I got. They gave me a deck. It was the summary. And I thought, no, 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 users don't get it. I'm an instructional designer. I know what learners need. Um, and maybe your listeners are not so arrogant, but my goodness, was I arrogant about that. And, um, and so then we launched this portal with all this really good content that I spent my nights and weekends putting together that I knew was instructionally sound. And about 70% of the users who landed on that portal immediately bounced and left. And it was heartbreaking. And so uh, about lunchtime, we launched it that morning, 7,000, 6,000 people hit it that morning, 70% uh, bounce rate. They just left as soon as they got there. And of course, what did I do? I immediately went to that deck that we got from the user lab to see if there was anything in the research that I could possibly use. And it turned out there was some really simple uh, steps that I could take to make that experience better. And so immediately I looked at the web developer and I said, hey, we, can we make these changes? We're going to put a number one and the word start here, a number two, then do this, and then number three. Now, those were the only changes we made to the site. We literally just added numbers and the words start here beside the content they should start with. After huh. lunch, after we made those changes, it turned out to be a 30% bounce rate. Uh, so we, we flipped the funnel and had a lot more people staying. And that was kind of the moment that I bought into, you know what, experience does matter. It doesn't, it, I could write the best course in the world, but if my learners don't know how to find it, if it's not usable, if it's not intuitive, it's, if it's not desirable for them, ultimately, I'm not sure that I'll ever be successful again. And that, that's what started my journey. Fascinating. That's so, and so now... Um, that's what you do. And, uh, do you, are you now like in love with this, uh, this user portal? Do you put them in there all the time now or what? <laughs> well, I've left capital one, but I, I do as much user research as I can. So that's one of the fundamentals of learning experience design or learner experience design is it's become a bedrock of everything I do is incorporating the learners. There's this phrase in user experience that's used quite regularly. And it is you are not the user. And an absence of bringing in a user, talking to a user, designing for a user, creating personas, you will design for yourself inevitably. It's not a bad thing. It's just you know you the best. But the problem with you knowing you the best is that you've been taking training for years. It's your specialty. You're not a normal user. 
So you've got to spend time actually talking with users to find out what they need. So you go, uh, sometimes it comes in the form of usability studies, which are where you sit and watch them. You don't need a one-way mirror or video cameras or anything fancy. You can do it on Zoom or on WebEx. You can do it from leaning over their shoulder and you simply watch them interact with your online modules. You walk to watch them interact with your learning systems or your learning portals and you end up creating this um, really robust. Here's the thing. I have been working in this field now, I guess I've been doing five or six years worth of learning experience work. And in the past five years, I am surprised every time. I feel like I'm getting better. I feel like I learned the learners better. I use the personas. I use journey maps. And still, I go into a usability lab, and the learners absolutely blow my mind over and over with simple things that I missed that get in the way of them learning. And so it's made me absolutely passionate, uh, narrowly focused on taking L&D professionals who do really great instructional design who do really thoughtful analyses and design efforts and saying, hey, maybe that's not enough. Maybe that's not enough for us as a skill to just do really good content. Let me, let me say it a little bit differently. There is um, a slide that I use all of the time when I give talks. And on one side of the slide, it has this, um, instructional design and the word content. Because I think a couple of years ago, we absolutely found our value as instructional designers, as learning professionals, in the content we created. So we went home, we laid our head on the pillow, and we thought to ourselves, I designed a good class today. I designed a good module today. I did well. And um, in those days, a couple years ago, the number of modalities, the complexity we were dealing with was far less than what we have today. Today, the complexity we live with is that we're not just designing content, we have responsibility for context. So if I were gonna really simplify that difference between experience design and instructional design, and yeah. where there's overlap, right? So let's, let's not pretend that these are always clearly distinct fields, just like a content developer and instructional designer, sometimes you have a hybrid role where you're somebody who both interacts with the client, uh, does the high-level curriculum design, you know, works through the objectives, all those pieces, but you also have responsibility to open up a storyline or, or Captivate or whatever your tool is and actually publish out the learning. Those are hybrid roles. Well, instructional design and learning uh, experience design, those can also be very hybrid in nature. Some organizations, they're big enough that those are separate roles altogether. But let me just say what I think ultimately the difference is between those is that instructional designers are largely focused on content. They are focused on, in, on designing instruction, designing training assets, designing training resources, instructor guides, presentations. Um, they're responsible for e-learning modules and job aids. They're responsible for assets, content. 
experience design is responsible for the context around it. So experience design can absolutely get engaged with the learning module or the templates or the resource itself. But uh, experience designer is thinking from the very first moment, what is the first communication you get about this content? What is the, the, the communication you get about it? And sometimes I've watched instructional designers who are working on uh, publishing their course in an LMS. And by the time they get to that moment, they're kind of like, whatever, here's your description and your course mm -hmm. title to go in there. I'm so exhausted after months of working with difficult SMEs. <laughs> I've got no juice left in the tank to uh, give you anything creative. Here's the bottom line. And experienced designers uh, pause at that moment and go, oh God, like you may never launch this training or your first interaction to whether you're engaged or feel the training is valuable happens before you ever open the module. It happens when you try and search for it in the system. So an experienced designer may focus on what are the words that we're going to use in search to find it in the system or to find it on your portal? What is the communication that you're going to get when you enroll? Uh, what is the feeling that you have the moment that you open that first page? And if that first page is an instruction page about how to consume e-learning, for God's sake, stop it, right? So <laughs> they're immediately like, uh, okay, you know what? If this is not intuitive enough to use it like a website, it's too much. It's too complicated. So an experienced designer is thinking about that. They're thinking about on the back end, how am I going to take this thing and apply it? What message am I delivering to managers? So some of your listeners, I'm sure, are going, yeah, I do all that, and I'm an instructional designer. Well, great right? You're designing for the experience in totality. But many folks don't have the capacity, the energy, or even the experience or training to know how to put together this full content and context, right? So I was talking about that slide earlier. The left-hand side is content and instructional design. The right-hand side is context plus content and experience design, learning experience design. And it's all the modalities. It is the email communication. It's the podcast. It is the full package of the e-learning module, but it's all the resources and videos you get inside it. It is being thoughtful about what day of the week this hits you. It is thoughtful about what day of the year, what month of the year. Is it in context? Is it in the flow of your work? All of those things roll into experience design. Oh my gosh, it's so fast. I, I love that you said that it should be hybrid and, you know, and the way that we get better is to learn more, especially about our field and, you know, it's interdisciplinary. So what, what does the actual process of LXD look like? So where are yeah. you? I'm, where are you in, you know, instructional design? I, I mean, I'm familiar that it's like at analysis, but you say it's always all the way to the end, obviously. Um, so what is the whole process? Where, where do you live? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the interesting things, I think there's tons of debate in our field these days about what exactly is the model that we do use? What's the model that we should use? Should we be using Addy, Sam, Llama, Ropes? Um, there are so many different models that are out there. And uh, I think user experience doesn't have this uh, Addy model. It doesn't have a five-step model of these are the steps that you, you take. One part of user experience is design thinking. It has a model of the steps that you go through for that. But um, user experience work is integrated, embedded in each step of the process. 
Yeah. So if I took something like Addy and I said, where does this live? Where does user experience and learning live? Uh, let's, let's start because I'm going to take you all the way through the process. So let's say that I'm in the analysis phase. Um, this is a great moment to do persona development, to go out and interview five of the users that will most likely be um, the target for your solution. Or if you have multiple personas that are a part of it, maybe you're doing five each, but you're going out and putting together personas. Uh, another great part, I think experience design, if experience design always just feels uh, frou-frou and touchy-feeling and, and it's talking to users, I think it's um, too narrow in its scope. So another great part of the analysis phase is to go out and do things like looking at the data. Uh, look at the business data. Where is the process getting hung up in the business? Where are we struggling uh, where are we seeing the most help desk phone calls where people need support? That's a great form of analysis about what users really need. Um, so that's the analysis phase. Let's say we go to the design phase. Um, I, I think this is another great moment. If you haven't, if you didn't do uh, persona development before, now's a great moment to start persona development. Another tool from UX that I really like in that phase is a journey map. Actually bringing the customers in the room for one day and talking to them about their normal day or if you're doing a course in the context of, let's say new hire, let's look at the journey as a new hire. When you make the decision that first week, how are you feeling? What are you experiencing? And asking ourselves as learning professionals, okay, where do we hit you with content in the context of your journey this week? Not just do I have the right content. I think of the classic example of like, you're a new manager, here's performance management. Except for you're not gonna do performance management for six months, so why am I giving you, I'm assigning you this online module in month one. Uh, I, at that design phase, I could do a big design thinking workshop, bring in users, ask a ton of questions about what kind of solution I should have and what that thing should look like. Uh, in the development phase, this is where it's critical that I am prototyping. I am iterative, I'm doing a process of iterative design. I am doing more usability testing on each of the individual assets, the um, minimum viable products during the way. Let's test a video, let's test a job aid. If I put this one page in front of you? Does it add value? At the implementation phase, um, maybe at this point I'm actually doing a click path where I'm seeing how many clicks does it take for you to access this tool? I do another round of usability testing instead of the individual assets. Now I'm doing it much larger. Uh, I am putting together what the key messages and marketing are going to be for the end solution. And then at the evaluation phase, I think this is where UX is going to pay a ton of attention to web analytics. What are they clicking on? Where are they dropping off? What's the bounce rate? Uh, what does my mailbox traffic look like? Do I see that people are continually getting hung up? I, I had a customer this morning who pulled up a module for me. She had gotten 10 emails. It was a, a course that went out to about 1,500 people. And just in the past 24 hours, she had gotten 10 emails from users who thought the course was broken. And the reason they thought the course was broken is because on the page, they would select an answer and the course would immediately say uh, correct answer. The problem was the instruction said to pick two. So because they got the correct answer after the first answer, they thought the course was broken. It wouldn't let them move forward inside the course. But nobody sat down and said, oh, 
we should probably not tell them it was correct until they give us both answers because otherwise they're going to be confused and think that they weren't going for it. That's another great example of I'm looking at, and, and that came from their help desk. That instance of we need to make the user experience better was a result of traffic to their mailbox where they saw that they needed to make change. And then again, I would say that evaluation phase is a great moment to go back and update your persona, update your journey maps, see what those look like and see how you can continue to make those better. So hopefully those are some examples of where you might include it, learning experience design tools and the phases in the release of a course or a curriculum where you might see those things happen. Okay, so what is the difference between a persona and like a learner analysis? Like will you figure out who your audience is? That's What's a, the difference? That is a great example. So uh, a, an audience analysis, and it really depends on what template and what format that that takes. Uh, audience analysis really is, it's demographic data across an entire organization. It is about learning needs for a particular uh, a set of learners or your audience for a course. And it's incredibly valuable. Do not hear me say it is not valuable or good. Do it. Um, personas, on the other hand, they, they come from marketing. And personas are very much about taking a very small handful of data, let's say five users, doing an hour interview with each, five to seven users is normally about the size you would do. And then you find out questions that are less narrowly focused on your content or your subject matter, and you tend to focus on more things just about them. What's their motivation in their role? What are their career aspirations? Where are they going? Where did they come from? How did they choose it? What are their biggest frustrations during the day? What do they love in terms of the way that they consume content? And you don't ask questions like, what form of learning do you like? You ask things like, how do you get your news? Do you prefer a podcast? Do you prefer uh, an alert on your phone? Are you somebody who actually sits down at the end of the week? I love my uh, The Week magazine. And so you sit down and look at a summary of it in retrospect. How do you consume those things? And you end up putting together this picture, a literal picture of a person, and this whole mapping about who they are as a person. Because here's the thing. Who they are as a person has an enormous impact on how they receive what it is that we are delivering to them. Again, it's going back to their context. So we're putting together these pieces of the puzzle and we're compiling them into a picture. And then we name that thing. We literally give that person a name. That person is Marissa. She's a new hire. She's 24 years old. She's new to the role. Her background is this, the things she's afraid of, her career aspirations. And of course, it's not just one person because the risk is if we design for one person, we're missing plenty of others. But it's a picture. It's not a real, Marissa isn't a real person. She is a hybrid of five to seven people that we've talked to. And we say, oh, Marissa struggles with this. And so it's time to design a course. And we're not just saying, here's, here's the audience. Here's their demographics. What we're saying is, well, what did Marissa do this morning? Why did she, what happened before she, sh she showed up? Is she, uh, is she a, a, a parent? Did she come distracted because she just delivered the kids to school? What examples are we giving? So we ask ourselves hard questions. We create a learning design outline and then everybody sits around and goes, 
does Marissa want this? Does it meet Marissa's needs? Is it, is it touching on her motivations? Did we stay away from the things that cause her the most frustration, right? We're taking it and we're designing with that person in mind. And we do that for, let's say this course has three personas. We have to balance all three of those together and there are trade-offs that happen. But we ask ourselves not about the audience analysis, which may be sales consultants or data analysts. Instead, what we do is we say, what is John looking for? Uh, what is Tom experiencing? What are we looking to give Tanya out of this experience and framing up our solutions in a very human way? Oh, okay. This makes a lot of sense. Um, I've also heard it called in marketing the ICA or your ideal client avatar and it's the same kind of thing. And it's, and it influences the way you uh, write your copy or like what social media channels you publish on. Cause you want to find out where they live and, Okay. Absolutely. Complete alignment with that. Uh, here's a funny story. So my, my daughter started, started Montessori school and a couple months ago, we, uh, were given, we, we were given the tour of the school and, and you, you think to yourself, I'm an individual. I am me. I stand apart. I, I have, so my wife and I show up and we're, of course we're good. Um, we're from the South. There are certain things that you just, they're common. It's in the fall. So here we are with our Yeti cups, with our coffee in it, and we show up in our gingham shirts and our vests, right? Because who, I, fall's coming. We, we put our vest on and we kind of stroll in, in our, um, in our outfits thinking here we are as individuals. And we show up with, with maybe four or five other couples. Robin, I swear to the good Lord above, Every couple that came, there was one person in gingham and a vest carrying coffee in a cup like mine. And I thought to myself, I am on somebody's persona board somewhere. When they created this vest, when they created this coffee cup, when they created, heck, maybe the Montessori school, they put up that target audience of who they thought and they put my picture, my gingham shirt and my vest on that thing. And boy, did they ever do a good job of creating a brand that people around me like me want. That's so funny. And also what's even funnier about that is like all the parents are like in their uniforms and I don't know about your Montessori school, but ours, they all have to wear a uniform anyway, like the kids do. Oh no, our little ones right now don't wear uniforms. Uh, so no, it, the irony is the kids are free flow, free spirit, not in, in uniforms, but the parents all are. <laughs> 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 and if it, and if your wife was on the persona board, her um, vest would be monogrammed because she's from the South. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> here's the truth, Doc. She was indeed wearing a monogrammed vest. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have her persona on my board. <laughs> That's so funny. So it sounds like okay. So now you've like explained your process and. And, but we talked about it being a hybrid. So it sounds actually very time intensive. I mean, you have to interview five per people an hour each, that's five hours. And that's just to get a persona together. So, I mean, does it really take a lot of time to implement LXD into your process? Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really fair and a really good question. Cause ultimately if you were to integrate everything that I just talked about inside of your Addy process, your, your customer's going to hate <laughs> because you are going to deliver it, whatever the length of your project is, you are going to deliver three months past the timeline that you were supposed to. I think so. So I'm going to kind of upside downside 
to both of this, which is um, to, to both sides of this. So on one hand, what I'm doing is ultimately, uh, you know what, I'm going to tell another customer story. So hold on. The, the question, I'm going to enter back into the question. Okay. So give me just a second. <clears throat> I think what you asked was such a great question. And, and I think um, it's a really fair question to ask us because if you layered in all of the things that I just talked about, you could add weeks or even months to your learning design process. Now, I was on a phone call with a customer giving a talk uh, probably two weeks ago. And I was talking with this group of project managers about their solutions. And I asked them, because they had the same concerns about missing their timelines. And I asked them how many of them actually have change controls on their project, their project timeline gets extended, or they end up having to revamp them as a result of not exactly getting the right solution to start with. And the answer, I won't give you the exact number, but I'll say it's more than 50% of the folks in the room. So when I was talking to them, what I said is, for the love of God, you can't afford to not do this, to spend time with learners, to ask them what they want and need and design better for it up front so that you're doing less change controls on the back end because the solution you've come up with actually doesn't meet the mark or you didn't clearly have a picture of it. So there's a certain amount of this that as we all know and have discussed in learning over and over again, the better, the stronger my analysis, ultimately the better my solution, the less iteration that I may have to do on the total solution. Or, you know, we've done whole programs that end up getting thrown away because they completely missed the mark because we didn't talk to learners at the beginning. So there's that side of, of does it take longer? Maybe it takes a week longer as you start to add things in. But ultimately, if I'm not doing more iterations or trashing my content sooner because uh, I was on a target, on the right target, ultimately I have this time and cost savings that I'm going with. Of course, when you're talking about to a client, if you're you know an external uh, contractor doing learning design, <laughs> They don't quite see the world that way. So one of the other things that I encourage people to do is the ultimate message of learner experience design or learning experience design is focus more on the user. So I have never seen a project, not one, that incorporated all of the things that I talked about earlier because it's not realistic. Uh, there are different places. So pick a project and pick personas as the place to start and spend one extra day writing a good uh, research protocol, which sounds really fancy, but write a good questionnaire of the questions that you're gonna ask, Con conduct five interviews on that day and spend one or two hours at the end of the day putting together some summary. That is one day on your project. I promise, hand to God, one day is not gonna break your project right? You're going you're gonna to add a day onto your project anyway. But if I can take one to two days and just do personas and do better design as a result, great. If, if your normal process is, and most people do this, they do a SME review or a stakeholder review earlier in the project, uh, maybe in the design phase. The way that you write that contract, if you're an external provider, or if you're an internal provider, the way that you start that project is just to say, hey, at each iteration where we have SME reviews on the same day in parallel path that we're getting SME reviews, we're also going to go to our learners. We're going to have five, 
learners. As a matter of fact, I need you to provide me their names, emails, and phone numbers. And we're going to go to them on the same day and ask them at the same time that we're in court. And when we go back to edit for the SMEs, we're also going to go back and iterate for the feedback that we get from the learners. Um, if you're doing a journey map, you make that a part of your analysis from the very beginning. So I think for each one of these, there are ways to parallel path. There are ways to incorporate these in here without making it longer. If you do it all, for heaven's sake, you are going to end up with a solution that takes you uh, a lot longer to do. Also, once you do a persona, let's say that you're somebody who services the same audience over and over. And this is especially true with internal um, uh, clients or uh, if you have like a client management role or training manager role where you're responsible for the same audience over and over, you have the new hire sales consultants, you have the experienced sales consultants, you have um, the uh, experienced analysts, whatever those things are, you, you do that persona. The persona is not unique to the course. The, you, the persona is not unique to the program. The persona is unique to the audience that you're working with. So for that particular audience, once you have that persona, that's something you refresh once a year. So it's almost like carving out a little time outside of the project to spend a week and go put together personas that you're then going to use for the rest of the year for the next two years every time you design for the same audience because you're getting a picture of who Robin Sargent is and what it is that she wants to get as she goes through the course. Oh my gosh. I could just go, I just could go deep into this whole topic, but um, I, yeah, I want to keep it a little more actionable. I was, I was then going to ask questions, don't answer this question, but then I was going to ask questions like, okay, so now you got the persona. And so how do you write for the person when you know uh, what their aspirations are, but don't answer. Right, I mean, right, we, right. we can go do research outside. It's just a, an intro, an intro uh, episode. Okay. So you're writing your personas, you're making journey maps. Do you have favorite tools? Or are you just whipping out a Word doc or what? Yeah. So I think um, my favorite, <laughs> this is going to sound so lame. My favorite tool of choice is PowerPoint. It's ubiquitous. Everybody has it. Um, that tool uh, is so much more flexible than it used to be. I mean, great if you have skills and you can go use um, the Adobe suite and you can put together something really flashy and fancy, uh, do it, right? More power to you. I think most of us need to move quickly. And, and so I have templates that I use in PowerPoint over and over for uh, um, uh, personas. I have the same thing. I have a simple grid to start the journey map conversation. And, and, and the chances are, I mean, if you're going through this activity, this is good old fashioned post-its on whiteboards, right? This is grouping activities and then you find a way to frame it up quickly into a presentation. These are the things I use a lot. I do use, um, if I prefer, I'm working with a virtual team and I need um, to, you know, look for themes across quotes or those kind of things. That's where I'll turn to a tool like uh, Trello. If you're, if you have uh, some familiarity with that and you can move it around, there's this really simple tool uh, that I used with uh, one of the organizations I worked with called Scrumbler. And it's not fancy, your notes don't stick around, but it's uh, scrumbler.ca, S-C-R-U-M-B-L-R.ca. And it's just, it's literally just a board you throw post-its on and people can all log into the board uh, or go to the URL at the same time and they can add notes and you can arrange them. So I mean, I prefer post-its uh, to, to capture. I take massive, my 
my uh, research protocols are in Word, my, um, which is to say my interview scripts are in Word, my uh, finding themes and alignments happens in Trello and Scrumbler. Uh, if I've got everybody in a room, it's on a whiteboard with post-it notes. And then the outputs are almost always coming in the form of presentations, PowerPoint, uh, as the tools that I use most of the time for all of that. You could get to some really awesome tools that are out there. I need to move faster and I need to use things that are ubiquitous because I'm working across lots of different customers. So that's the way that I work. Ooh, so you have uh, some templates that you use over and over again. Do you have a website, Matthew, or... I do. I do. Um, if you go to thelearnercollective.com, that is my website, thelearnercollective.com. Uh, if you go there, um, you will find blog posts, resources. You know, I, what I don't have right now is a page with all of those resources. Doc, I'll have it up by the end of the day. I will put up a resources page with some of the links and curated resources that people can tap into. Oh, bonus. Podcast bonus. We got a whole LXD go. resource page. That would be awesome. And I'll make sure yeah. to include that in our show notes. So um, I think you've talked about, I mean, my next question was like, what are actions we can take immediately to improve our learners' experience? But I think you've mentioned it throughout. Is there? Can yeah, I just say me. it? I'm going to say it one more time. Talk to your freaking learners. That's the action that you can take, right? If you want one thing that you can go do today to make your learning experience better, it is to find five people who are going to take your content and talk to them. Whether or not you have a formal research protocol or you're just picking up the phone and saying, what do you think about this? And, and ultimately, we didn't even talk about this. I'd love to have a neutral third party doing my review um, because, you know, my emotions get wrapped up in my own solutions. But ultimately, start somewhere. Pick up the phone, find your learners, um, and go sit in front of them and find out who they are, what they want and need. It doesn't matter if you've been in that organization for six months or 16 years. You are coming with your own bias uh, and, and baggage about what you think. The false consensus effect. Uh, the, uh, you have a, a confirmation bias. You have a ton of baggage that you're working with. Ignore yourself. Ignore your biases. Assume that you're a beginner. Make yourself, put yourself in a place of absolute humility that you are willing to grow and learn. Adopt that mi growth mindset. Sit down with the learners. Ask them for their feedback. And do not defend yourself or your solution. Take their feedback. Go back to board and say, how do I make this better? That's where you start today. Pick up the phone. Thank you so much, Matthew. Oh my gosh, you have just like um, changed everybody who uh, is new to instructional design or maybe some people who've been doing it for a while just by coming on and sharing this very important information about getting in front of our users. And our my pleasure. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at idlecourses.com. If you like this podcast and you want to become an instructional designer and online learning developer, join me in the Idle Courses Academy where you'll learn to build all the assets you'll need to land your first job, early access to this podcast, tutorials for how to use the e-learning authoring tools, templates for everything course building, and paid instructional design experience opportunities. Enrollment opens September 12th. Go to idlecourses.com and get on the wait list. Or if you're listening to this during the enrollment period, go enroll on the same website, idlecourses.com. 
Now get out there and build Transcendent Courses. 